Well, good morning again. If you watch that video and you're anything, you have a personality like mine at all, like, okay, that was fun. Now, who's going to clean up a living room? That's, that's just kind of how I'm built. But, uh, hey, before we start, last week, um, <clears throat> I, uh, we talked about keeping short accounts. And so, uh, you know, making sure that we don't allow there to be a gap between people and things we say and do and stuff like that. And I kind of had a little bit of a gut check on the front row uh, as we were singing. And so I want to apologize. In my weak attempt at humor earlier, um, as I was talking about the marriage date night, I may have kind of towards the end of that thinking, oh, this will be funny, implied that, you know, if you're single, like maybe if you were single, you came and you wouldn't be single when you left or me trying this weak attempt at humor. And I want you to know in my heart, you know, I want to make sure you understand if you're single in here today, that's not like a problem to be fixed. <laughs> that's that's not a, an issue. And I apologize. Uh, I do. Uh, that was not my intent to uh, make you feel any certain way. So uh, if that hits you, if it didn't hit you wrong, just forget everything that I just said. But um, I'm, I am, as a human being, seeking to allow the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart, as Psalm 19.14 says, to impact me a little bit more. And so I apologize. And I want to make sure that you understand I highly value you. So um, all that to say, I'm going to read for you a scripture. Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 1, or sorry, 11 through 13. Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. You'll see them on the screen. <clears throat> Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. He goes on in verse 13. He says, my people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me the spring of living water, and have dug, dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Uh, a week or so ago, I um, was driving down Highway 6, coming back into Portage, and I had stopped at a stop uh, light behind a car. And um, as is always the case, you know, you, you're stopped there and you're looking around, and the car in front of me was an SUV that had multiple uh, stickers all over the window, political stickers. And I started thinking, you know, why do people put stickers on their window of their car? And I do. I've got a truck out here. It's got a For the Region sticker on it because that's who I think we are as a church, and I, I kind of believe in that, and For the Region. Uh, it's got a picture, a, a flag of Guatemala. Guatemala's flag is on my back window because there's some people down there I love. And, uh, it's you know, we kind of advertise a little bit about who's inside. Some people go all in. Like, they'll have a sticker on the back of their car that says, my favorite person is my cat. So that's everything that you need to know about that person, right? Is that their favorite person is their cat and, and all that kind of different stuff. And so as I was sitting there at the stoplight, I'm looking, and I'm reading these political stickers. And uh, while it was very clear that these things communicated about the person in the car and particularly what they were against, as I was looking at those stickers, I found myself thinking certain things. And then, out of nowhere, I saw eyes. 
and the eyes of the woman that was driving the car were in the rearview mirror looking at me, looking at her car. And instantly, I, I did, I had a gut check. I had a gut check, and I realized as I'm looking at another human being, that's what I was looking at, looking at another human being, and as I waited for the light, I realized that I get tempted sometimes to reduce the totality of a person by certain labels. Sometimes even by their political affiliation. I saw those stickers, and it's easy when you see that to assume, I think based on what I see in your window, I know everything I need to know about you. Everything I need to know about you. Um, I could put them in a certain camp politically, and if I can do that, that tells me everything I need to know. Have you ever caught yourself doing that? Maybe your heart rate goes up a little bit, or you pull up behind a car and you shake your head. If they just got it like I get it, if they just saw things the way I see things, reducing somebody, the totality of somebody, to the opinions that they hold, or the, the political affiliation that they have, reducing that person to a sticker, a sticker. Listen, if there's anything evident in the last two to three years is if you express an opinion politically, you will offend somebody, regardless. You will offend somebody. And so many times because of that, it's really easy to stay silent. It's really easy to be quiet, even when scripture's used to justify a bias. It's easy to stay quiet when Christians abuse social platforms with zero accountability of how they do it. It's easy to stay silent about politics, politics that separate people, and even, if we're honest, separate believers of Jesus at times too, okay? Uh, and sometimes we're silent on things like immigration, silent on things like race, silent on things like human sexuality. And while it would really seem that Christians should be able to disagree on some things and still represent Jesus Christ well, the evidence kind of points the other way. Okay. And this is, this is complicated further by a younger generation that's watching. Uh, watching many Christians add outrage to the things that are going on around them or sometimes worse, remain silent about some of the things that are going on around them. If you don't, if you don't think that's happening, go to TikTok. <laughs> there are entire accounts dedicated to either the silence of Christians or the outrage of Christians. Uh, and there's a lot of casualties on both sides of that. Uh, our world begins to fail to see Jesus reign in our hearts. And as we've seen, that's a pretty important deal to Jesus. He's pretty passionate about that. Uh, our annual focus in this church, 2022, is one. What does it look like for a body of believers in a world of division to function as one body, who love one another, who serve one another? What does it mean for us to love God, to love people, to serve the world? What does it mean for us to represent a different kingdom? Because the, the pattern of this world is division. The pattern of the body of Christ is working together as one, united, even though we might be different. We're united by Jesus, and that looks different in John 17. That giant scripture, you walk past all those scriptures as you come in here today on the wall, out in the foyer, the big sticker 
John 17, Jesus is praying. He prays that you and I might be one. Then the world will know that God sent Jesus. Then the world will know by our unity, our oneness in Christ. So today, we get specific. We get specific. But first, uh, these sermons that we're about to look at and these, these things that we're about to talk about, they're not just about the topics themselves. Okay, I want to make sure that you understand that, yes, we are going to highlight where the church falls on things in the next few weeks. There will be statements that you receive about where our denomination stands on certain issues and, and how we posture ourselves on certain issues. But the question really is, is it possible to posture ourselves so as not to add to the division of the world, but actually provide a solution, be a part of the answer to the prayer Jesus prays in John 17. And to do that, we're going to lay some ground rules. Is that okay? <laughs> I'm a 100% a type A guy. So uh, we're going we're gonna to kind of set some ground rules for how we approach these. We're going to talk about these every single week in this series. And the first ground rule is this. Jesus followers don't use labels or rhetoric to end dialogue. We do not use labels or rhetoric to end conversations. Labels, cliches, name calling, character assaults, all of that stuff, that accomplishes one thing. Silence. That's not a conversation. That's not a dialogue. That's an insult. Okay? And insults are meant to end conversations. We don't do that. At worst, what those things do is they create enemies. And Jesus would say something about that, which leads to number two. Jesus followers don't take an us versus them mentality. This is not us versus them. Now, conveniently, history has shown us what to do with our enemies. You silence them, you marginalize them, you push them to the side, or you destroy them. That's what history has taught us to do with our enemies. The problem is, is Jesus tells us to love them, <laughs> to pray for them, not just make posts about them, okay? So Jesus deals with us differently there, which also means, number three, Jesus' followers act like all are created in the image of God. All people are created in the image of God. Whether they view themselves as created in the image of God or not, all people have been created in the image of God, and we conduct ourselves on that fact, on that fact. Now, this is really important because when we view somebody as less than how God views them, or we somehow, to a certain extent, dehumanize them, it's really easy then to put them in a certain camp, put them in a box, put a label on them, and dismiss them as less than. It's easy to make an enemy out of somebody that you can label and slip them to the side. We don't do that. It's easier to dismiss them, to vilify the other. Okay, is that fair enough? So... We don't use labels or rhetoric to end dialogue. We don't take an us versus them posture. And we, don't, and we do act like all people are created in the image of God. In the image of God. Now, one last thing. There are times, I want to make sure you understand this, where we do need to speak truth to power. That is a necessary thing. When people are being harmed, when life is jeopardized, when policies and practices need to be challenged for the sake of other people and their benefit, uh, there are horrible, horrible atrocities that have com been committed on this planet and are still committed today, and w good people don't say anything. <laughs> they, just, they just remain silent.
But let's be honest, okay? If we could just be honest in 2022, the rhetoric, the labels, the animosity, even just, honestly, the disgusting and dehumanizing speech and posturing of Christians does nothing but add to the divide. It does nothing but add to the divide. That's not real life. That's not us. Now, even though I've said that, people usually hear what they want to hear. And I really can't fix that. Um, we, we hear what we hear filtered through our biases, through our life experiences, our anger, if we allow it. So knowing that, what I want you to know is I'll be staying to the commitment that I made to you at this time last year and that I reiterated the last two Sundays. I will speak to you the truth in love. And I will do so keeping short accounts. I will try my hardest to do that. And I hope that's what you receive in this. Now, let's go. The dictionary defines politics as the art or science of government. That's it. That's all it says. <laughs> There's a couple other extended ones, the art or science concerned with guiding or influencing government. I mean, it's just, it's a very, blah, just this bland definition. Politics is the art or science of government. I found that very dissatisfying. <laughs> so can I give you the RBD definition? Can we try something here? RBD, Richard Benjamin Doring. I'm gonna give you the RBD definition of politics. You'll see it on the screen. A system where leadership is given to government and policies for the well-being of those governed. Okay. A system where leadership is given to government and policies for the well-being of those governed. I like that, because I think that's what we would all want politics to be, right? A system that actually benefits people, that, that it, it given to government and policies for the well-being of those people who are being governed by those politicians, that sounds pretty good. Okay. Now, up front, we need to understand, because I know the temptation, and I've heard it, faith and politics, those things don't mix. And generally, we don't like when they mix, because if they fall on the political camp, we don't like. Okay, so one of the things that we need to understand is faith and politics, they're inseparable. They're inseparable if you are going to be a thinking Christian in the year 2022. They're inseparable. There are a whole slew of issues that Christians absolutely should be convictional about, like safety and life and health, inequality, injustice, all kinds of stuff that we should be convictional about because Jesus cares about those things, okay? And it's true, two good, good, good people can disagree on some of those issues. The challenge, though, really is this is when faith and politics and the intertwining of those turns into something else. Something a little bit more problematic. When it turns into idolatry. All right, Pastor Rich, you just said it's a ground, against the ground rules to apply labels. <laughs> what I'm telling you is that I'm tempted. I am tempted at times to allow things 
or maybe political ideas or parties or agendas or ideas to drift into places of prominence in my life that God never intended for those things to have. I have that temptation. Do you, you don't? Are you never tempted to allow politics to be the filter when you meet somebody for the first time? And you hear them talk and you start connecting dots and you realize, oh, they're on what? The other side. Or <coughs> when you go and listen to a pastor preach and you start connecting some certain dots and start making some assumptions. You're never tempted to do that. You might very well be a better human being than I, but I know that when that happens in my life, those loyalties that I have sometimes define my actions, sometimes most definitely define my thoughts about people, sometimes my words and responses and attitude as opposed to the source of all truth, God himself. Instead of going to God and asking him to allow me to see somebody the way he does, I see somebody filtered through all these other things, particularly the things that are not like me. And that's a problem if you profess a faith in Jesus. It's a big problem. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. Paul tells us in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship, our citizenship is in heaven. This is not our place. This is not our place. Heaven is our place. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. Okay? And our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And sometimes, sometimes these two kingdoms, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth, sometimes their values overlap. And when that happens, that's awesome. That's amazing that God's kingdom is coming to bear on the kingdom of this world. When those two things overlap, that's absolutely amazing. But if we're honest, they don't do it as much as we'd like, right? They don't do that as much as we'd like. And while our hope is not rooted in Democrats or Republicans, our hope is not rooted in a president or an agenda, being a citizen of the kingdom of God is not an excuse to drop out, to not vote, to disengage, to to kind of be distant, to be aloof. Those aren't reasons to do that. The church should be a prophetic witness and speak truth to power. It should. However, the integrity as a prophetic witness on behalf of Jesus is helped or hindered by how we engage. Your prophetic witness as a follower of Jesus Christ in the realm of the political world is affected by how you engage, by how you do this. And this is where the rub hits, okay? The rules of the current game are destruction. I mean, that's just all there is to it. The rules of the political game right now is just destruction at any cost. If I can dehumanize and stoke fear of the other side, if I can huddle people in my tent, if I can stoke the flames of fear and stoke the flames of loss, if I can reinforce the failings of that other side, I can name, name call, I can share memes, I can write posts, I can insult, I can do all that stuff. And if I do that really, 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 really well, I can actually change the geographical color of my area from blue to red or red to blue. Or if I do that really, really well, 
I can co-opt entire news organizations and social platforms. To win, there's got to be losers, right? And this game right now in the world today is played in the dirt. That's just all there is to it. And in that game, Christians do no favors to the cause of Jesus Christ if they play by those rules. Zero favors to the cause of Christ if we allow ourselves to play by the rules of the kingdom of this world. It's not the kingdom that we're a part of. Our citizenship is somewhere else. It is incongruent with Jesus to do those things. To love enemies is what's congruent with Jesus. To love enemies, pray for them. Turn the other cheek. There's a guy named Dan Dan Boone uh, in the book, A Charitable Discourse. He writes this. Our business is not enemy making, but enemy loving. It's not dividing the country into blue and red states, but being people of one accord. Our business is not securing power to rule, but doing justice, showing mercy, walking humbly with our God. That's our business. Listen, the people of God are not owned by a political party. And there is no political party that owns the kingdom of God. The horrific things that have been said and conveyed about people created in the image of God and the willingness to justify behavior on any side for political advantage is symptomatic of idolatry. Idolatry. And idolatry at its core is reappropriating our faith away from God and putting it to broken systems and gods of our own making. That's what idolatry is reappropriating our faith to broken systems and gods of our own making. Enter the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 2.13, my people have committed two evils. Number one, they've forsaken me, the fountain of living water. And number two, they've hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that don't hold any water. So two different things. He spoke into the lives of the people of God at a really horrific time in their history. They were exiled. They, they, were, they were in trouble. Okay? They'd been displaced. God's people had been displaced. And uh, the faith that they had, this generational faith, this identity with God, didn't really carry much weight where they were in their society at that time. They had no political power, no pull, no push, nothing. Okay? So in that sense, their faith didn't do anything for them if that's the goal of their faith. So they were in a really kind of tight spot. And unfortunately, in the midst of that tight spot, and maybe even predictably, they started doing something. They started looking around. Oh, maybe that could be a source of our hope. Or maybe, look, look at all these other people. They put their hope in this over here. Maybe if we put our hope in that, and they began to take this hope, this God who had done so many things for them. I mean, they, these people of God had experienced the fullness of God's love. They knew God's love. He delivered them out of 400 years of slavery. He'd done amazing things. He'd parted seas for them. He gave them an identity. He gave them a purpose. He smacked his name on them. These are my people. He provided food from heaven for them. I mean, he did amazing, amazing things for them. Yet in their fear and in their pride, they turned to the idols that were around them to provide what they thought that they needed. Because they panicked. They were full of fear. 
cisterns are wells, okay, basically. And you can imagine a, a good well, a good cistern that holds water is really important if you live in a dry, arid place like the Middle East. And so that's, that's basically what that was. And if, if that plaster-lined well, that cistern, had cracks in it, it couldn't hold what it was designed to hold. It was basically designed to hold life. Without water, there's no life. And that cracked cistern would just leak water, leak water out. So honestly, going to that cistern over and over and over again as though it's going to provide you life was kind of ignorance, really. It, it didn't make any sense. But I have faith today, even though I know there's cracks and I know there's fissures, my hope is in this. And you go and every single day, you're, you're, there's no water. And in fact, every single day on the way to that broken cistern, Jeremiah says, you're actually walking past this incredibly flowing stream of potable water, of, of fresh, clean, living, life-breathing water. You're walking right past it, and you keep going to these broken cisterns to find the very thing that's being offered to you over here. You've put your stock in something else. It was pointless to seek life from this. Yet that's what the Israelites did. Do we? Do we do the same thing? Jeremiah's point had two, two points, really, when it comes to idolatry. And the first is this. The politics of idolatry happen when we act as though God is not enough. And I know we sing songs about how God is enough, but singing songs and then acting like God is enough are two different things. Can we agree on that? The politics of idolatry happen when we act as though God is not enough. God had shown his people over and over again that he was enough. Over and over. But when pressure comes, we panic. And honestly, it's natural. It's natural to panic. Listen, when we fear loss, uh, when, we, when we fear a loss of security or health or a loss of anything else, really, it's, it's natural to panic a little bit. It's natural to feel uneasy. It's natural to, to be a little scared when prayer isn't answered the way that we, we feel like God needed to answer that prayer. We kind of, we panic a little bit. When the country takes a turn in a direction we don't want to see the country take, we tend to, we get, we get all anxious. We get upset. The question becomes, what do we put our stock in in that moment? For the people of God back in Jeremiah's day, they rolled their stock into another source, thinking it would bring life to them, that it would solve their problems. But Jeremiah's other point is really, really clear. Idolatry is putting our faith and energy into substitutes. Putting our faith and our energy into substitutes. Um, we are tempted at times to act like somebody who walks every day past a clean, pure stream to collect water from a broken cistern. And to make it worse, if you read the scripture, it says they dug their own cisterns. It's plural. They found out one leak, and what did they do? They didn't return to that stream of living water and plant themselves there. Instead, they're like, well, oh, here we go. Let's dig another one. Let's line that one with plaster. And as it dries, it cracks. It holds water for a little while, at least long enough for us to gather a crowd around it. But pretty soon, all that life drains out of it. And what do we got to do? Let's, let's, let's learn our, le no, no. Oh, here's another one. 
and we dig another one. They did it multiple times and they kept returning to the things that could not do for them what only God could do. They reappropriated their faith onto things that were never designed to carry their faith at all. Find a new politician, find a new agenda, but they're all broken systems, all of them. Tim Keller, he's a He's from Redeemer Presbyterian Church, Presbyterian Church of Manhattan. He says this, and this is so, he says, when we center our lives on the idol, we become dependent on the idol. And when you become dependent on something, you'll fight for that thing. Whether or not you should be dependent on it or not, okay? We're dependent on it. If threatened in any way, our response is panic. This may be the reason why, and this is what he says, when either party wins an election, a certain percentage of the losing side talks openly about leaving the country. They put their kind of hope in their political leaders that once was reserved for God in the work of the gospel. Now, I want to make sure you understand something. Politics revolves around people. And Jesus died for people. So that means you and I have a vested interest in politics. For people who represent the gospel to the world, the anti-gospel rhetoric that comes out of our mouths sometimes, the things we do, the things we say in blind devotion to politicians or parties is telling. The idea of loving neighbor sometimes gets thrown out the window. Thrown out the window based on party. Maybe even today in this room, you're thinking, today is the day. Today we find out which way Pastor Rich stands. Okay? I mean, he said this and he said that. That probably means he's, he didn't bring up this, he didn't bring up that, so that probably means he's, what? Means I'm what? A good friend. He's a good man. Um, he holds public office in Wisconsin. And we were neighbors. And uh, I'm privileged to know this man. And uh, without fail, every single time the election would come up, he would ask me, Rich, can I put one of my signs in your front yard? And every single time my answer was the same. No. Now, that was not a reflection on him. I voted for him. Um, it had to do with the exceedingly narrow view people who followed Jesus had of me. Or, more specifically, my neighbor. My neighbor. Indirectly, it was him, which reveals the most damaging thing political idolatry does. It reduces the totality of a person down to a stupid bumper sticker. It's exactly what it does. Uh, it places conditions on the value of people. I want to share with you a story. I, my first pastorate began in 1998 in Iowa, and um, we only had really one set of neighbors, the, the only the people that lived next to us, and uh, we loved them, our next-door neighbors, the Eisenhowers. And uh, we got to know them really well. We were super young. 
and they had adult children, and so they kind of took us under their wings and adopted their brand new kid neighbors, and uh, they were kind of our adoptive parents, and we, we loved them. We love them to this day. Uh, Larry was a judge uh, in the appellate court system, a senior judge in Des Moines, and uh, we, just, we just loved them. And uh, in 2005, the United Nations contacted Larry. He had been in the military service, and uh, they contacted him because the United Nations was in Kosovo. And uh, the United Nations was finally getting around to trying war crimes that had happened during the Civil War in Kosovo. I'm not going to go into all the details of all of that, but um, there was ethnic cleansing and all the atrocities and horrific things that you can imagine that go along with that. And so um, basically the UN contacted Larry to come for a six-month stint so that he could oversee a couple of specific trials and make sure that corruption did not come kind of in the side door of these trials. So in in a sense, he was almost policing these trials to make sure that the victims got justice and that, you know, things weren't tampered with or people weren't threatened and it was just a it was a it was a weird kind of a situation, but he was excited to go. Larry was super pumped, and he thought, "Man, I'm really going to be on the ground helping some people who have been horribly traumatized." And so we said our goodbyes, you know, and, and all that stuff. Six months later, the guy that came back, he was emaciated. I don't know how much weight he had lost, but after the first few days in Kosovo, um, he lost his appetite. In in fact, he told us most of his diet consisted of crackers and peanut butter. That's all he could eat. Uh, After listening to the stories and hearing the testimonies of these victims, but then compounded by the fact that his life and his presence being in Kosovo as a judge in those situations, his life was constantly under threat. He was under security guard 24-7 for six months. And it did a number on him. He came back physically sick. He came back mentally in pain, spiritually in pain. And I, we loved them. We loved them. They would come and our kids would be in a program at church and they'd come. And we, we had a great relationship with them. Just incredible, incredible people. I, I happened to be at the church one night after he'd come back and I was sharing with a little group uh, about Larry. And man, be praying for him. He's really struggling. It's a really, it's a really bad situation. And Larry's doing good today. He's, a, he's all right, but it was, it was bad back then. And after we were done, we prayed and, and all that kind of different stuff. We were getting ready to leave the building when uh, somebody came up to me and uh, came up to me later. And then they said to me, you know that they're probably fill in the blank, political party. Doesn't even matter which one I tell you right now, Republican or Democrat. You know that they're probably that, don't you, Pastor? What do you do with that? How many conversations about faith, how many expressions of love, how many prayers offered over the back fence never happen because the idols that you and I have grafted ourselves to? See, these are days right now for the church of repentance and lament over maybe what we've become. These are days of reckoning 
to the church. Empty system. And I want you to please understand me. We do have a mandate as followers of Jesus to be engaged. We do. In fact, some of you are going to leave here today, (laughs) and maybe even in one of these other messages that are coming down the pike here, and you're going to be disappointed. I I just know. Uh, I will not have said enough to bolter something that falls in a more liberal camp. Um, I will not have said enough uh, to hit conservative talking points. I I will not have said enough about certain things. Uh, I have plenty of opinions about all kinds of different stuff. And I think politics can be an exceptional tool for good. But you and I also know it can unfortunately inflict horrific harm. Horrific harm. Specifically. Specifically when it leaves good Christian people to misplace their faith revealed in their words and their actions. I wish I had more time today. I'd love to share with you thoughts from Mark 12 where the Pharisees asked Jesus a political question and dive into his response in that uh, you know, we've not even touched on voting or how do you choose a candidate or how do you take a certain stand on a legislative issue or, or all that kind of different stuff. I, I'm very cautious, I think. <laughs> uh, we'll find out after today, I guess. But I'm, I'm very cautious to share resources and I'm very, very cautious to share opinions when it comes to certain things. And there's a couple of books. You, I've referenced this one a couple different times, A Charitable Discourse by Dan Boone. He's the president of Trebekah Nazarene University down in Nashville. Uh, that resource, I think, is actually in our, in our um, resource center in the community space. You should go check that out. And uh, that's, that's a great resource that talks about how do, you, how do you navigate some of these issues as a follower of Jesus. Another great book by Scott Daniels is Embracing Exile. What does it mean to be the people of God living in the world that we find ourselves in today? How do we remain faithful to what God desires for us? when we live in this world of division that is not our home? What does that look like? There's another one that's actually in the Resource Center, too, called Kings and Presidents, written by Tim and Shauna Gaines. They're down in Nashville as well uh, at Trevecca University Church. But uh, those books might be available to you. They might be an asset to you. I don't know. Uh, I I could tell you about different organizations, organizations that I follow that I think are, are fairly apolitical, and they, they actually do exist. They, I mean, they actually do exist. <laughs> that there are these apolitical organizations, faith organizations, that seek to bring people together so that the greater good is achieved for the kingdom by all kinds of different people. It's an amazing thing. And I could, I could share those things with you, but that's, that's a double-edged sword, isn't it? You are smart people. And you know this. Ultimately, if you look hard enough and keep certain filters on, you're just going to kind of see what you want. I can't control that. I can't do anything. And it really just comes down to this. While our engagement in the realm of politics is needed, how we engage hurts or helps the witness of God's people. How you engage hurts or helps the witness of God's people. We are people of the gospel, and the gospel means good news. Good news. Albert Simpson once said, we're due for a gospel that drives out fear rather than depend on it. Man, that's so smart. We are due for a gospel that drives out fear instead of depending on fear. 
That man wrote that in the late 1800s. The late 1800s. And in light of that, I want to close with the following. You'll see it on the screen. Would you stand? The scripture says this, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love your Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly, do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? That last question is for next week. Can we pray together? Father, when it comes to these sensitive topics, uh, you've brought us together as the body of Christ. You brought us together to be one, to be an example of what it looks like to function as the body of Christ in the world we find ourselves in today. May the words of our mouths, the meditations of our heart be acceptable in your sight. Help us, Father. If there's any allegiance that we have that has caused us, Father, to place an undue amount of hope and faith in a person or a party or an ideology or whatever it is, Father, help us to reappropriate that back to where it belongs. Our allegiance is to you. And Father, we live in a world where it's so easy to confuse that and to conflate those two things. But Father, we believe that today through the work of your Holy Spirit, you can speak to every single one of my one of our hearts. I pray that you continue to speak to mine. That you would continue, Father, to keep my eyes focused on you. Keep my eyes focused, Father, on seeing people the way you see them. Father, maybe that begins with me seeing myself the way that you see me. I know my faults. I know my failings. I know my fears. And yet when you see me, you see me as a beloved. You see me as somebody worth sending your son Jesus Christ to die for. You see me as a person of value. You see me as a son. You see me as a child of God. Father, may I see other people that way too. And not allow the other filters, Father, to cloud my vision so that I might be a proper witness for your son, Jesus. We love you. We thank you for the opportunity we have, Father, to be your church, to be considered to be children of God. We love you. It's in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. God bless you. Remember, those tickets are available for the date night out in the foyer. And uh, that resource center is open in case you want to look at some resources or buy a sweatshirt or all kinds of different stuff. Thanks.